But let's turn our attentions to Genesis 16 as we continue to understand the book of Genesis and how it forms our thinking. And so my question is, what forms your thinking? What shapes and frames everything that you see here and how you interpret and lean into the world? And I know, I know, some people are saying, I'm a free thinker, Vince. I, I am an independent agent. I think all on my own. But hey, here's the deal. All people have frameworks for thinking. Even the belief that your mind is totally independent or outside of influence is culturally influenced by, <coughs> excuse me, by late modern and culturally Western ideas. Rather, this is what we should say, all of our thinking is framed by our language, our cultures, our customs, and what story we believe the world to, uh, that we're in. And so our version of what we call the good life and where we're going shapes how we lean into the world, how we react to the world, how we form ethical and moral uh, decisions and how we do things, right? And so we're all living according to a story. You and I are living according to a story and we have a framework for thinking about the world. And so it comes that, that Genesis is what frames the story and all stories in general form shape the imagination of God's people. So Gen Genesis is shaping the imagination of God's people. It becomes the lens through which they view and understand their situation and time. It's the framework for understanding their world. Now, if we were to go forward and look at, like, how are we to understand this Genesis 16? It is cryptic. It's weird, it's a story, it's not YouTube, it's not a TED Talk, it's strange to us. Paul in Galatians 4 at the tail end, starting in about verse 26, helps us understand how the New Testament saints and he understood this story and how it framed their thinking. He says, for Abram, Abraham had two sons, one by a free woman, the other by a slave woman. The slave was born according to the flesh, which is kind of the uh, uh, normal spirit of the world, the normal way of doing things, and the free according to the promise. Therefore, this whole episode is to demonstrate the enslaving power of sin, that it is a normal functioning way. It is a polemic against trying to do things with your own hands, trying to establish the work by your own effort, or trying to reach the good life without ever getting to Jesus. So Paul concludes that there are two ways in the world according, according to Scripture. One way is the way of the flesh and the law, he says, and the other is by grace. The, there is the way of self-determination for Paul and the way of promise. There is my way and then there's God's way. There is my work and there is God's work. My power or his power, the way of disbelief or the way of faith. For Paul, the whole episode is one of unbelief or sin, the way of self-determination. Therefore, we should see this. All self-salvation projects is just digging ourselves a deeper grave. Therefore, it's like spiritual quicksand. Remember being a kid and you're desperately afraid of quicksand? What is the number one thing you do not do? You do not flail around and try to get yourself out, but rather you got to wait for someone to save you. Of course, quicksand was a big problem back when you were a little kid. You were afraid you were going to find it on the sidewalk or something, but here it is. Here's spiritual quicksand. 
You know, the struggle in order to save yourself, you'll only find yourself drowning in more sand. Any religious or irreligious way of self-actualization or trying to achieve the good life through human effort is an ill-fated self-salvation project. And this episode shows us that self-salvation is only really self-damnation. But all of our thinking in this world is held captive to the spirit of the age, the belief that we're free to achieve our own best life now without Jesus, that we could do it through the work of our own hands. But maybe since coronavirus, you started to realize that you're less in control and that the work of your hands is not as effective as, as, as uh, you first thought it would be. There's this one fictional story. Yeah, it talks about frameworks for thinking and how we understand the world. Uh, it's fictional because there's talking monkeys in it. So that's how you know it's fictional. Good. Uh, where a group of monkeys are together and a tsunami starts. They start to see the wave out there. They feel the rumble of the earth. So they run up into a coconut tree. And there they are. The waters come in. And one of the baby monkeys, he's looking down and he sees what appears to be a worm there in the water. And he's like, oh, no. It's, it's dying. Look, it's drowning. It's suffocating. It's going to die. We must go down and save it, everybody. We must save the worm. They get down there and they notice that there's many worms. And so what they do, the right thing to do, the way that they can help out, the way they can save them is by grabbing these worms. They run back up the tree. They throw them onto the top of the coconut tree so they can dry out and they can breathe the fresh air. But old wise baboon comes by and he says to them, Hey, monkeys, why'd you kill all those fish? And the monkeys are like, what do you mean? And he said, they, we, we, we kept them from drowning. He's like, no, you just suffocated them up, up there on top of the tree. You see, all of us are kind of like the monkeys. According to our framework for the world that we live in, we believe that we're helping God out. A lot of us believe that our moralism, our kind of strict ethics, our self-righteousness, our ability to follow the rules is a lot like Benjamin Franklin saying that God helps those who help themselves. Oftentimes, this is our default in the world. We think we're doing some good, but in reality, we're only hurting. Many times in our sin, we rationalize that we're helping God out. God needs a helping hand. He's not going to come through. I must kind of help him out. And so we rationalize them, but we only find that we're digging ourselves deeper. The thinking and instincts of the monkeys were influenced by their understanding, their context of the world, their story for how things go. And in this story, and in particular, Sarah and Abram don't believe that God is actively seeing or hearing them. And it is displayed by their sinful actions. But according to the way we see the world, they think that, they have to, and that we all have to help God out. See, the way of faith is seeing with more information. You have access to a data set, the way of faith, that isn't accessible any other way. And so you see with more than eyes. You know with more than rationality, with more than logic. The slip into disbelief or unbelief is usually unnoticed. We just go back to the default mode of the heart because that's the way everyone is operating. The belief that we have to make ourselves hearable or seeable for God to accept us is what we automatically think. 
Active faith, though, means that we uh, do not, uh, it's not that we don't follow the Ten Commandments, but it's that we don't have to follow the Ten Commandments for God to actually like us. See, the default mode of all of our hearts is that we have to follow things like the Ten Commandments for God to like us. Or, put it in an Eastern way, you have to live according to the rudimentary Dharma, the basic rules of life, in order that in the end, your karma may be good. It is functionally just moralism. That's the default mode. And so what does this story tell us? It tells us what Jonathan Edwards, the old Puritan minister, says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Salvation doesn't come from our work, but from God's promises. So we're not saved by our self-effort, but by God's hearing and seeing his actual personal presence with his people. And that comes only by the saving work of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at the ground for sin, the avoidance of sin, and grace for sin. Like any plant, the fruit of sin grows in fertile soil. The narrator tips the readers off to indicate that the ground was prepped and the fruit was ripe for Sarah and Abram to sin. The first verse in our text preps the readers for this problem. So she, like many of us, are faced with a problem, with, with a, this big problem. God promises a son, but there's no son. What am I doing wrong? Automatically is what we think. And so that we think we have to do something in order for God to help us out. Okay? So there's a temptation inside and outside for Sarah. Internally, she feels the pressure to perform. She says, I've got to make myself presentable. She can't make it happen. So she then begins to feel shame. And then she starts to shame herself. And so what does she do? She's like, I've got to cover it up. And so she says, God prevented me. Then she faces the temptation from the outside. It was well and acceptable that, that they would take maidservants and that you could use them as surrogates for a child. And so therefore, her thinking from the outside, the temptation is like, this is acceptable. I can do this. I should do this. And it's good. It's moral. But rather, the entire story says for, for Abram to take another wife is a complete train wreck. That this is all sinful. That this is all bad. And so it doesn't work this way. And so she reasons to Abram, go into my maidservant so that I may gain for myself, is what the word says, not, not just so that I can uh, so obtain, but rather I can gain for myself by the work of my own hands and be built up, be a somebody through her. So they're going to use the maidservant in order so that she may become a somebody. And so this is the ground for sin. This is the way it works. Um, and the, and whenever you look at narratives, the importance of dialogue is really important. Sarah legitimately believes that this is the way God will give her and Abraham an heir. They use their logic to back up their sin. She's looking to God. To, she's looking to help God out. And so she says, I, so that I may gain for myself through the work of my own hands, that which God promised, so that I may make a name for myself. And then she goes to blame the Lord for this not happening, for her barrenness. And then she leverages her arguments in her favor that all this is okay. 
Abraham is pushed into a passive character in the narrative too. And it's on purpose. It's to show that it is uh, uh, not to get him off the hook, but rather the narrator is demonstrator that by his passiveness, he's committing the sin of omission. He is to be a garter, a keeper, to protect, to tell her the truth, to live in community with her and remind her of the promises of God. But he doesn't do that. And so they trust in their ability to see and hear and to do things and to get things done. She trusts in her scheming instead of God's promises. So then it says in the text and echoing back to Genesis 3, it says that she took and she gave in the same way that Eve took the fruit and gave. And it is the similar, it is to contrast when Jesus had taken bread and wine, and he gave. So they are eating the fruit and the labor of their own hands, their own self-effort against God's promises. And so that's the way many of us find ourselves. We find ourselves rooted in the ground of sin. And so what do we do? The way of disbelief or doubt uh, it, it, the way of disbelief is this doubt wonders. So doubt, it kind of like wonders like, well, may, is God going to come through? So doubt's just kind of wondering, but disbelief is this disbelief believes in the alternative that God is not going to come through that without my help, God isn't going to be able to do this. So that's a disbelief that God isn't going to come through. You see, this is the disbelief is the waters we swim in. When you check your phone, what is the first thing you do? Where's your brain sucked into? It goes to social media, checks to find out uh, if, if God is helping you out becoming famous or getting a good reputation. You check those things. And so the context or the ground for us, a lot of us, is toward temptation and sin. So think of it this way. Whenever you're lonely, isolated, Whenever you are feeling vulnerable and you wonder, is God going to come through? You feel those anxious moments, those moments of stress, when you realize that your paycheck isn't as big as it should be, and you realize it's short, you start to sweat. You start to feel this, this gnawing feeling that God doesn't see, God doesn't see, hear you, that God isn't near, that you must have done something wrong. And so what do you do? You try to wrangle it with your own hands. You try to wrangle your own life and obtain the good life for yourself. And then what do we do? We start to shame ourselves. God isn't going to come through because I'm a failure, we say. I'm not lovable. I'm not noticeable. God will not hear or see me because I'm a sinner, we start to say things like, no Christian acts like this. No other Christian gets a poor, short paycheck. That's ridiculous. Lots of Christians go without food today. But is God's promise is still true? Is he still with us? You know, we start to think that I am the only one suffering with this. That I am all by myself. There is no community. But the right way of faith 
is a different ground. It sees with different eyes. It is an act of faith. It lives according to God's ways and expects God's greater reward and doesn't settle for anything less. It, settles, it only will settle for the promises God has made in himself that he would be present with them and he would bless them and he would allow all the things to happen. So the sad things come untrue in this world and in your life because God's presence is with you and we may not see it tomorrow. But what do we do? The way of faith, though, identifies and knows the temptations. They knows the stress and the anxiety, the temptations internally. What are all our little insecurities? All the things that we feel ashamed about? Uh, I'll let you in on this one. I sometimes believe that people don't listen to my sermons because of my annoying voice. You know that? I'm really insecure about my voice. And so it drives me wild. Like I cannot hear my own voice. It takes the act of God, the work of God for me to actually re-listen to my sermons. I don't like listening to my voice. So we need to know the lies. We need to know the lies from the outside. Like, oh, this is the way you can do it. Therefore, do it that way. And what we need to start doing is telling ourselves the truth. That at the cross, we actually know that God loves us. That because we see him becoming undone and we see him becoming ashamed and we see him taking on the punishment for guilt, that we will not be punished for our ultimate guilt because the guilt was pushed on Jesus. We will not be ashamed in the end because the shame was on Jesus. But rather, we, like Jesus, will see all the sad things come untrue because on the day of Easter, on the third day, he walked out of the grave into newness of life. And so that we, too, will walk out of the grave into newness of life and we experience that life now in community with others. And so we have to join a community of other truth-tellers as well. People who will remind you of the truth, who know the temptations, who know that you sin and that you're a mess up like you or me. But God comes after those. So the next thing, though, that we can look at, though, is this avoidance of sin. In some form or fashion, we're all running from God. We're all running from God. In particular, we see this way uh, from, uh, we see this in particular uh, from the way Sarah avoids God. She's avoiding God at all points, Right? And so what we see is we see Sarah, you know, uh, I, I don't know God if you're going to come through or like, actually, she never even addresses God, which is interesting. She, she just says, uh, the Lord has prevented me, him over there, like far away. So she's avoiding God. She's not going to him with her problems and her doubts. And like, I'm confused, God, are you going to come through? She doesn't do that. She does the opposite. And so she tries to take things into her own hands, avoiding God the entire way. Next, when it begins to affect her and when her sin kind of haunts her and like a little specter or ghost and like in, in, uh, and Hagar starts looking down on contempt with her, what does she want do? She's like, ah, I got to get rid of her. And so she adds sin on top of sin, which is just running away from God more and more. She asks Abraham to judge but he dismisses her, so Abraham shirks his responsibility. Notice that they're all running away from God. 
They don't want to accept responsibility. Then she uses his passivity as a reason to mistreat or violate God's law. Sarah's like, Abraham isn't going to live up to it. Therefore, I got to take it into my own hands. And then she mistreats or deals harshly with her, which is against God's law, against a maidservant, and sends her away. And then notice that Hagar is headed back to Egypt, back to the place of slavery. Hagar, though, whenever she had anything positive go for her, she uses that as a means of self-righteousness to look down upon her, her uh, mistress. But like, ha ha, Sarah, look what I did. Boom, biggity bam. Where it's like, what did you do? Like, how do you look down on contempt? Like, this weird thinking, and which reminds us that sin makes us think weird things, okay? And it's all avoiding God. Sin hurts, though, and we'll see this, and it exploits the marginalized. Hagar very much is a victim of a godless situation. God's people are blessed to be a blessing, but here we see their sin become a curse to others. Now, I need to make maybe an apologetic station break for a second, okay? See, a lot of people will say, Christianity, we need to get rid of that because that is a religion for uh, old white men who, who uh, are against women, they're misogynistic, and they lack diversity. Which, to me, I, I need to stop and say this. Okay, well, time out. Is that really true? Because uh, the biggest lodgers of this complaint are usually secular humanists that complain that there's no diversity in Christianity and that women are never in leadership or in, in any other way. And so they, they, they lodge that complaint. But do you know that secular humanism, free-thinking societies, uh, different things like that, are predominantly white men and only in Western countries? Do you know that the majority of Christianity are, uh, if you're to like just kind of like, you know, pick one Christian out of the entire world, the chances are you're going to get a woman of color that's what happens. And more than that, we actually see that this is not the way to go. The text is saying, no, this is not right. And more than that, uh, belief in the idea of equality of women does not come from secularism or naturalism. Go ahead, try to prove that, you know, um, that, that, that equality of men and women can come from naturalism. No. It is only in the belief that male and female are made in the image of God that we could possibly get the equal, equal treating and equal footing of man and woman. And in fact, much of the civil rights movement for women's rights does not come for out of the sky, but it comes from God's word in the Bible. That's how we got here. And so, is it good for women? Yes. Notice what God does to Sarah. In, or not Sarah, but Hagar here. In avoidance of sin, we're just trying to make ourselves more savable, more presentable before God and others. Notice that they're all deferring responsibility in order that they may have a clean ledger, that they may be able to be acceptable. Because of Jesus, though, we are free to confess that we are sinners. If ultimately we are not judged by our ledger, and what we've accrued as far as debts and uh, capital before God, but in the end, we are approved only because of Jesus Christ's capital and that he took on our debt, 
then the, our, our ledger matters nothing, ultimately. And so that allows us to be free, free from the idea that we need to make ourselves presentable. The way of disbelief, though, is that we need to become irreproachable. We need to hide behind the veneer of busyness, having a good job. We could sacrifice our kids because we've got a good job, having a secure bank account. We need to be able to hide behind working harder, hiding behind becoming more competent, behind be, behind, hide behind becoming a straight-A student. And so what we'll do is we'll blame others. It's my family's fault because uh, I am not a superstar at work. Uh, they'll deflect blame. It is a so-and-so's fault. But if Jesus' ledger is the one that you are judged on, then you could say, uh, yeah, that's my fault. I failed. You don't have to passively pass off responsibility. You could just say, yeah, no, I got this. This is my fault. You could confess your sins, your wrongs. You know, you don't have to try and run away. The way of faith acknowledges your need. It accepts responsibility for things. And when your wife or your spouse or your roommate says, hey, dude, I didn't like this. It was terrible that you did it this way. You know what you might be able to say? Because of Jesus, you should be able to say, yeah, you know what? Probably I am that messed up. It accepts responsibility, the way of faith. And it's free to take all the chinks in the armor because we don't have to wear any armor. Because Jesus Christ was the one who was pierced through the heart for us. And we're judged by him. You see, we know that God sees and hears and he knows our frame. He knows that we're tiny and we ask for forgiveness. That's what the way of faith does. We ask God to help us. When things don't make sense, when we're confused, we ask God for help. And so let us look then at the grace for sin. Notice that Hagar is headed back. She is headed out going back to Egypt. Egypt generally in the narratives are talked about as the place of slavery, the place of sin. It's not a good place and she is headed there. It is the place of damnation for her. And God's grace comes in the form of the angel of the Lord whom Hagar will address as the Lord himself came and found her by a spring. The springs were images of new life, new birth, new opportunity. And so the Lord finds her by the spring. So Christian salvation is not that we find God through our self-effort or our study or our ability or our good theology, nor is it that we make ourselves to be found by God by being irreproachable more moral than anybody else. There is no room for boasting in Christianity because you are not the one who found God, but rather the truth is through Jesus Christ, you've been cut to the heart by the power of the spirit and you were found by God. You're found by God. And just like this, she's in the wilderness and God finds her. So grace Christian grace is about being found by God regardless of our ability to merit it. 
It is as if Corey, as as what Corey Tenboom says, there is no pit so deep where God's love is not deeper still. God can find you, and He may be finding you today. You know, what's interesting is when he finds her, notice that this back and forth, she says, she says that she's fleeing her mistress, Sarah. And truth is, she's fleeing the Lord. And that we also see this interesting thing that she is a foreigner and God is doing to a foreigner what is something interesting. In all of ancient Near Eastern literature, Hagar, this foreigner, this Egyptian, is the only woman called by name in the entirety of ancient Near Eastern literature. He calls her by name. Hagar, where are you going? Servant of Sarah, where, are you, where have you come from? Where are you going? He seeks her. He finds her. Then, and the incredible thing, is she's the first person in all the scriptures to call God a name. She says, she says, um, you are the God of seeing, for you have seen me. She will name her son Ishmael, the God of hearing. And so we don't have to doubt that God sees or hears, he says, because he puts himself on the line. He will tell her, your son, yeah, it's going to be tough for him. He's going to be the product of slavery, slavery to sin. Look how terrible it's going to be. But Hagar, I see you, that there is salvation for you. You just go back to, go back to the place of salvation. It's there for you. So God sees, God hears. Vinicio Riva is an Italian man, and many people turned their faces from him. Many people did not want to see him. People did not want to hear him, for since he was 12, he was developing a, uh, the, a genetic disease in which his body would develop boils and would pus and ooze, and they covered him from head to toe, and generally they were painful, so he was in a constant state of pain. It would pus and ooze, and nobody would want to see him or hear him. But in an interesting thing, the Pope was coming nearby to his town, and so he moved over closer in his wheelchair and was pushed toward the front. Everybody avoided him and turned, they uh, avoided eye contact with him. Vinicio Riva, who went years without physical touch and being seen by somebody, the Pope looked at him, went straight for him, hugged him, and kissed him. Vinicio Riva was one who was unnoticed, unseen, unheard. But God sees and notices him. Now the Pope is just a man. How much more does God see and hear and know you and your struggle? And how much do we know that God sees and hears us? How much more? Because we see Jesus Christ on the cross. People turning their faces from him. And that he is unseeable, unhearable. 
God does not answer his prayers. God turns his face from him. And he gets the wrath and punishment for sin. Your sin. My sin. And so we know at the cross that God is the God of seeing and hearing. He is the God of seeing and hearing. He is the one who knows your frame. He's the one who comes to you in the middle of your distress. He sees you. He hears you. Because Jesus was the one who was not seen or heard. Because he was cast out for you. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, I pray that we would not run from you in our shame and our guilt, but we would run to you by your power. I pray that you would find us, that you would catch us graciously by your love and your mercy. Be with us now, Lord, through this week. Help us to believe in faith and walk that you are the God who sees and hears us in distress and that you know our doubts, you know our struggles, but you love us anyway. Help us to rejoice in this counterintuitive love that is found only in Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Let us worship in spirit and truth now. In Christ's name, amen.